Greetings, dear listeners. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. have no in on this but i mean um i feel like this is a conversation i've been wanting to have since october 7th in a way um and it's shoddy it has to do with with um and we've we've had the conversation in a way i just i, I think maybe it's like it's worth revisiting not with a, a philosopher we haven't no that's true and it's good i think i mean having having a real credentialed philosopher. philosopher yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. a credentialed philosopher, philosopher a philosopher in residence to push us a little bit more on it um but but, but before you know i mean i feel like the philosopher in residence can uh, and should jump in um but but i want to start it just basically on the grounds that we've been talking about it before which is um i guess how do i put this maybe one of the big disagreements that always undergirds me and you talking about foreign policy is the question of moral foreign policy. And I, I, you've always said to me, like, why do foreign policy at all if you're not, you know, doing it for the good? And I think it's tied up for you as well in some of your sort of theory of democracy that uh, there's a kind of moral component to it, and therefore, though democracies don't act as moral paragons always, there's something. There's there's an expectation of some moral component to Amer- to democracies behaving in the international sphere. And I saw you tweeting last week, I think, like Friday or something like that, maybe Thursday last week. You were you were tweeting about, you know, how how the war in Gaza um, is uh, is really forcing you to. Uh, reconsider American power. And I just want to throw that out there as a starting point about this question of reconsidering American power. I, I think I tweeted something glib back at you that saying, like, <laughs> we're finally in agreement here that, you know, exercise power is, you know, generally tends to the sordid in this way. And I mean, I'm not surprised by it, and you're disillusioned by it. Um, so I don't know. Give us give give us a sense of where you're at on that, in like very broad terms. Take it wherever you want. Um, but I don't know. How's that for kicking us off? That's good. That's good. There is a risk that I'm gonna. S- oh, do you delete your tweets because I can't find what you said to me, or maybe or anyway, uh, I have I, a general do, sense of. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, do you want to just text it to me while we're talking so I can just read it if out I, or something? If, if I find it, maybe I deleted yeah. it. Go on. So, I mean, uh, okay, I'll just start with a little anecdote. I'm not sure when exactly this happened. It must have been recently, though, last couple months. I was at something, and, and 
talking to someone who occasionally listens to the podcast, and he he had an interesting objection to one of our episodes, which is he felt that in that episode, I was expressing normie opinions, and he was disappointed Ooh. because <laughs> Savage, he had tough, super tough. Yeah, I know exactly that he had just um, become used to me having non-normie opinions and um, being unpredictable and heterodox and sort of, um, yeah, like the kind of thing that all, I mean, those are all positive things for many people. Um, But then all of a sudden I was saying predictable left of center things that most left of center Democrats would say about a particular topic. And he was just like, Shadi, you got to be careful here because... That's not what your audience wants. Mm. Right. It's the kiss of death to be predictable as a public intellectual. <laughs> but that that also concerns me because it means that there's pressure on us to always be interesting, original, and surprising. And maybe sometimes we shouldn't be surprising. Maybe sometimes we just got to be who we are, which is normie. No, that's fine. But for me, the problem with normie is that it's unexamined stuff. And I guess that's why, you know, it's always good to talk to you on this podcast, because it's all about pushing past the normie. There's nothing wrong with normie, but like instinctive knee-jerk normie is boring. So it's like, you know, excavate your norminess. So this is, but this is all a lead-in to say that since October 7th, I think that some of my views are sort of predictable or maybe i don't know they're they're sort of um they're kind of woke adjacent and maybe they're normie in that way of someone who is hey you know we have to care about the powerless and the marginalized and people who are being killed and there are actually real victims in the world and some of them many of them are palestinians and I think for some people, that's not an original, like, that's just sort of like, oh, that's like a standard woke position, which is, I guess, what I have on this particular topic. So this is just to say that people should be prepared for what they're about to hear, which is, um, yeah, there, I am starting to, okay, there are aspects of wokeness that I'll always find really annoying and still do. I was just reading about something, oh, yeah. Like the fact that in the incoming class for Princeton University, the class of 2028 or something, only 17% of them are white. Like this is this is getting a little bit overboard, you know, <laughs> like but, it but is. Could, could we dispense with with the woke category? Because, I mean, that's not that even that dis, like that category is sort of makes me okay, but, a little bit. Because right, it's but not, I it's mean, not, but that's a but a big part of what I was saying. What you what you either agreed with or took issue with was me saying that um, I agree more now with people who are woke and the people who I used to be aligned with on the anti so called anti woke side. We have a major divergence on Israel Palestine, so we agree on all these other things. Maybe in domestic uh, political debates on culture war issues at home. But many, if not most of those people, are on the opposite side of me on Israel-Palestine. That's not by accident. There's right. something about there's something about being less interested in marginalized people that seems to cut across the domestic and foreign policy can I, boundaries. Can I um? Can I give like a? I think almost the opposite view 
of the last few months of how you've been developing from your this party person that you were talking to so you know like we're all friends and like end up having a lot of time randomly uh over evenings just hanging out having food talking to each other and i've actually been you know so i'm not a foreign policy person for first of all and i'm also not a dc person first of all i've now been here for um five years but you're a dc person <laughs> i spent but no but it's it's just to say that i mean a lot of my older habits you know like i spent all of my 20s in university and um and and like you know i think my central kind of intellectual world is much more kind of moral reflection, moral philosophy, political philosophy, metaphysics, you know, these kinds of like disciplines that are like not exactly DC disciplines in the first place. But I guess I've been really kind of both like pleased, but also kind of moved by how, how this has gotten in for you, Shadi. Like there's a, a way in which I think the events have sort of ended up pulling out a kind of sincerity in how you feel about um, life, about people you care about, about the world, that's been just like really obvious. And there's a kind of vulnerability in that that's kind of come to the surface that I'm pleased about. And I think hmm. it there is a kind of moral weight or seriousness to it. You know, I think there's been an aspect of the like public discourse over the past, um, the like previous period that like people talk in like really exaggerated terms about the huge stakes around democracy, but also like in decorum, people are often really frivolous actually like playing cheap tricks on Twitter, the kinds of um, rhetorical moves that they're made. I mean, you've made this point. Like if people really thought that there was like an existential threat, their actions would be actually much, much more dramatic in certain, in certain respects than they actually have been. And I, th- I think like, you know, that's a temptation for anyone who's writing or thinking just to like get pulled up into the swirl of the like the game of 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 arguing in public. But I I guess my impression is that this this sequence of events around the war have actually gotten in pretty deep for you and that there's a kind of moral gravity to it that has actually come to the surface that you really care about. And I, I think that's the opposite of like normie in the bad sense. Like that seems to me like a very, very admirable kind of development well, thanks, and thanks, i think this is also put, the kind of thing that's going to bother demir a lot well no but but that's attractive. You put it really well so let me just i'll just Go add ahead. to what sam said because you're helping me think through like my own opinions on this and i'm also looking back at what i originally said which spurred demir on but i said basically what i said is that the gaza war has affected me like few foreign policy debates that i can remember um, that this does feel like a hinge moment for me. Um, it isn't something that I can sort of easily compartmentalize and just put to the side. And it does, I think, affect how I'm looking, not just at other foreign policy issues or Middle East politics, but it ends up, it, it ends up informing my worldview. And that's what a hinge moment does, even if it's about one particular issue or one particular geographical area. It has such heavy import philosophically and morally that it forces you to reconsider something deeper about the way that you look at the world. Yeah. And what so, I went on to what I yeah. went on to say, um, in just to finish the thought on the uh, in this tweet thread, was I said that the war is making me question some core assumptions about what the quote unquote international community or 
quote-unquote Western civilization actually mean, or if they're better understood as as constructs of power. And wait, I, what do you? What, I don't understand. What are you laughing about? No shit. That's what I'm laughing about. Like, I mean, you know, I, here's the point. The point is, the, the, this is what what because I, I was going to exactly try and get us off the woke nonsense because it's not that. What's what's like. What's enervating about woke discourse is that it's empty moralizing. And what has always sort of, I think, egged me on in our discussions about the international system and the rest of it, I'd be like, well, obviously it's anarchic and terrible and amoral because there's nothing to refer to and nothing to constrain it. You would be like, no, human morality somehow bubbles through it and, and ethics emerge in the system. I'd be like, well, that's a nice theory of something, but it's just empirically not true. And then we it go, is empirically true that there is something called Western civilization. Nah. It's not as good as its proponents make it out to be, but it's also not a civilization that like goes around like Genghis Khan and like massacres and rapes women and children whenever it feels like. I mean, that is not that, actually what America does. Genghis as Khan also as, didn't do it when he felt like it. He didn't do it to scratch a niche. He was like, I'm going to go rape and and pillage because oh it's saturday and it's like i need my exercise like again like you know okay, the but, conquest of, of genghis khan is actually more complicated than the caricature and your moral caricature of western civilization is western civilization whatever that is is far more complicated and of course but nuanced. i'm not saying that western civilization is amazing or awesome i'm just saying that there is there are moral considerations that the u.s takes into account when it conducts itself in war, especially in the last several decades, post-Vietnam. And we had a whole episode about this with um, Sam Moyne from Yale, who wrote a book about how America has, in a sense, perfected a more, quote-unquote, humane way of war. And we where there is really... What? I mean, we, and we disagreed on that read throughout that, never came to a, a final conclusion, in the sense that Sam was making the point uh, that that the military constructed this as a, as a means of getting around the the nattering moralists and created this sort of category of pers- prosecuting war that at the limits maybe is like humane, but even for Sam Moyne, who himself is a pacifist, it's far from actually humane, actually is brutal and just sort of under the rug in its own way. Um, Okay, um. <laughs> and you latched on to this as like Sam being some sort of you know real idealist about it, but but again, like that's not the case. The, the, okay, the, I'll just let me quote something yeah. from Sam's book because this is not me claiming that Sam is making an argument that he's not actually making. This is one quote from him. He says, "Of all the peoples in the annals." <laughs> Keep going. Of all the peoples in the annals of warfare, um, Americans are the one. <laughs> Americans are the ones who have invented a form of war, righteously pursued as superior, precisely for being more humane, and one tolerated by audiences for that very reason. Now, Sam might disagree about whether or not this is a good thing. He, but. He is arguing that America has been conducting war in a fundamentally different way and and um, that there is actually care taken to minimize civilian casualties, that when we're trying to kill an al-Qaeda um, leader, we actually try to wait until he's not there with his children. I mean, that is actually something fairly um, novel in the history of warfare. 
And you might say that it's just window dressing or, well, that doesn't change the fact that what America does is still brutal and ends up killing a lot of people because we're in so many wars for such a long duration of time that even if we're killing less people per day in the overall accumulation of years and years in our endless wars, we're still killing tens of thousands of people, fine. But that doesn't change the fact that there is a certain approach to minimizing civilian casualties. And so I I don't know, like that is, I think, worth noting, because that is not the way that I don't know, the Crusaders conducted war, but, um, you know, eight, you know, eight or nine centuries ago. I mean, I think it's silly to to like go back and forth over Sam stuff. But again, I'm going to do it is in the sense that and Sam Moy, not Sam Kimbrell, but like for for re- listeners who might be getting confused here, but the 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 uh, the argument also comes down to that these are 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 basically low grade, you know, semi slash post colonial wars of choice, like police actions where the stakes are quite low for us. And again, I mean, unprovable, but like I I think that if the U.S. was to get into an existential conflict or what it perceives to be an existential conflict. Uh, it would loosen those things as it saw fit. And then again, so... That's look, speculative, Debeer. Okay, no, but, but I'm so, just saying so, we have... So, so the, the, the main question is that, though, is is um, get back to then your dissolution, uh, your 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 reevaluation of, of uh, how we've fallen behind on our moral uh, remit here. Um, yeah, so I, I would have said that the U.S. generally does not... Um, commit genocides. That's another example. I mean, our enemies do that. I mean, China does that. For example, Russia, you know, can engage in genocidal acts and none of us are going to be surprised about it because we don't expect anything more of them. Um, was, so, was, nu- you know, was nuking Japan genocidal? No, no, because it wasn't about destroying the Japanese people as such. It's not like we're like, the Japanese people need to be eradicated. Okay, there so was Native partic- Americans, we did that at least. Right. I mean, yes. Because yeah, that, was, yeah. that was necessary. That was existential for us to take their land. So, you know, no, there were, no, okay, there well, were periods for- There were periods when, when the American project uh, set aside a goal for itself that yes. it considered but like current, manifest like, destiny. America, as I've experienced it in my lifetime, comport- isn't as bad as its adversaries. We do bad things, but on balance, we have been better for the world. That American dominance is better than the alternative of Chinese or Russian dominance. No, I I agree with that. Do you still believe that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still believe that. But I I suppose the question is, I, I (laughs) I suppose what I'm struggling with is... It's just hard. So one thing, as I've as I've brought up in previous conversations, is it's harder for me to tell my fellow Arab Americans or other Muslims or I just feel a little bit self-conscious if I'm telling people, oh, actually, guys, America is still on balance a force for good. It's just much more difficult for me to say that with a straight face as America is not just turning a blind eye, but actively facilitating the mass killing of Palestinians that Israel has been engaged in over the past th- uh, more than three months. I don't know. It just the U.S. generally isn't as bad as I think I've seen it in the past several months since October 7th. I think that's what some of us are having to contend with. 
And I just don't think this is comparable to the Iraq war. And it actually isn't comparable to the Iraq war. If you actually look at the number of civilian deaths that the U.S. was directly responsible for from 2003 to 2011, when we started withdrawing our troops, so about eight years. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but if I recall from when I was doing research on this recently, the the number is something around 11,000 civilian deaths that the U.S. was directly responsible for in the Iraq war over eight years. In three months, Israel has killed more innocent civilians than we did in eight years. I mean, the numbers, when you look at them, are actually remarkable. And um, also considering the fact that killing that number of people in the context of Gaza, which is which has about um, uh, 2 million people compared to Iraq's population, which is close to 30 uh, million or something like that, um, it's actually on a per capita, oh, sorry, 43 million. But at that, anyway, but, it's just like, it's a remarkable just magnitude of worseness. Okay, but America's not doing it. We're just sort of letting our ally do it. Like, 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 like Pakistan with Bangladesh. I don't know, throwing it out there. Widely regarded as a genocide. Ally went and did some bad shit. We looked the other way for larger reasons. Okay, but it's not very common for us to facilitate a close ally, one that is a democracy, one that we have such a close and historic relationship with as we do with Israel. There's just something about this that I just, it raises it to a different level. Oh, sure, maybe well, we've looked we looked. Shadi, when, you, when you're thinking about the darkest version of this in terms of America being a sort of sinister or not a just force in the world. How does that go for you in the last few months? Okay, like, well, the, the darkest version of this is that, and one that I've been, you know, I've had suspicions about for some time, but I think I've resisted the worst case scenario. But I do think, it, I do think that we can say, based on the evidence available to us over decades now, that successive U.S. administrations don't value Arab or Muslim life um, the way they do non-Arab and non-Muslim lives. I think there is something just uniquely callous about the way we view the Middle East and the Muslim world more broadly. Were we, were we, were we callous? And that's concerning. Like, as, no, but were we, as how, Arab... how, how callous were we for Asian lives where actually the bulk of the Cold War was fought? How callous were we about Vietnamese lives? And this is at the point of our own bayonets, and the point of our own grenades, not proxy wars, not allies, democratic allies that we're close with, et cetera, et cetera. You just said that actually the United States, what it did in Iraq pales in comparison to what Israel did. So actually, clearly we're not nearly as bad in the Middle East as we were in Asia throughout the, the, the whole thing of the Cold War. My argument on the Cold War is like, shit, it's the fucking Cold War. So there was a lot of stuff that informed our decisions that actually have nothing to do with valuing individual yes. lives. And that's, how foreign, and that's how foreign policy works, is that actually yes. foreign policy ends up being not about being like, how do we improve the lot of lives, but saying, what are our goals? And, and I mean, therefore, everything is, falls into that. And this is not surprising to me. That is, is what I'm getting at. I mean, this okay, is basically it, the mm. central argument in the kind of post-colonial literature that you were alluding to in your tweet, that um, if you look at the 
stability and white picket fence feature of America. It looks like a placid and peaceful culture, but the cost of that is very, very high in the kind of hinterlands. So like, this is why people always talk about the School of the Americas in Latin America during the Cold War. It's why people think that the kind of initial, like, so you have the initial conquest of, like, just to state the argument strongly, right? The initial conquest of the continent involved genocide. Um, there's a, um, like, pretty strong scholarly consensus now that the um, strongest, um, the strongest Native American alliance in like that kind of played out um throughout throughout the kind of period of american westward expansion was actually at the revolutionary war because they already recognized that the colonists were going to be much more ravenous for land than the the british were going to be and so they allied with the british like there was a large coalition of tribes that allied with the british specifically on that basis um and 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 the kind of arguments about slavery are similar and then as you um, kind of ro- run through through American history, the idea is it ends up becoming a kind of pillar stable society, but always with this kind of like strong tail of violence that needs to keep it in place. That's So that's just to like state the kind of argument strongly in that that kind of strand of post-colonial literature. And I mean, I, I take like the kind of force of your tweet to be that now that we're in one of those kind of um, liminal moments again, that as we see like a key like what's been taken by the Biden administration as a kind of key American ally in Israel, like in a, like what they perceive as a vulnerable position that America is willing to tolerate violence in a way that we haven't been for a while. Does that seem like a reasonable yes. way to kind of state that? Yes. But, yeah, but so, I, I, I mean, that is this fair, is not me stating my own view, just like I, if we can get like the kind of form of the argument kind of out a little bit. Yes. Yes. There is a, there is a brutality that courses in the veins of Western liberalism. All countries, um, I would just say, but but let's leave it at at, at criticizing okay, but, the West. But I would say uh, this is a normative. Uh, this is an empirically normative yes, statement. Yeah, I but yeah, but it's actually I think, I, but I hold the West to a higher standard because it is it is the civilization that I'm most intimately involved with. So of course I'm going to be more concerned about the brutality. Like again, we don't expect anything more from Russia or China. Or I don't know, like the Ethiopian regime. Like you, the list goes on. We would. How about of, like, how about of Arab states? Well, to the extent that they're dictatorships, I don't expect anything more from them either, because this is where the qualitative difference between democracies and autocracies become becomes relevant. So, what's wrong with Israel, a democracy that? Yeah, you, exactly. You it's acting. It's acting in a way that is, to put it mildly, unbecoming <laughs> of a democratic state. Yeah. Democracies aren't supposed to do this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, like this is this is this is this is the core of why I, I this moment is so pregnant for me is because like I've always said like I don't know what you're talking about and you'd be like blah 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 virtues better world why are you doing foreign policy if you don't think of a better world democracies think of the better world democracies think about like human rights and values and stuff like that. I've always been like, I don't know. I, I hear a lot of like activists talk about this and they influence policy in, in this town and it like shapes it a little bit. But there's nothing to me inherent in in the international system and certainly not democracies that would that would like tend to this. And then no, but imp- but look, but empiric. OK, I don't want to I don't want to just like lob lob facts at you because then you're going to say, I mean, I guess there's always different ways to interpret the facts, uh-huh. but 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> but post World War II and especially post Cold War, American dominance has led to a dramatic expansion in democracies across the globe. Empirically, this has been the case. It's reached a high point of about 52% right. of the world's countries being becoming democracies after the end of the Cold War. That is not an accident. The number of battlefield deaths and the number of large interstate wars has dramatically decreased because as America has become more dominant in the hegemonic. world. Hegemonic. Not because hegemonic, of democracy, yes. because it was like the global policeman and could only fight little shitty wars in for 20 years in Afghanistan, like bombing peasants in jeeps, not having to actually exert the kind of force that like we're seeing exerted in Ukraine, because that's a real war as opposed to our our adventures, our colonial adventures in Afghanistan and Iraq, those are not real wars compared to like what but, these things are. But it's not and just so, that. It's part of it is that America has helped create zones of peace in in a greater in a greater ra- range of geographical area because um, it was the, it was dominant. That's it. I mean, it, it yes. suppressed conflict not because of values, but because of its its power. And it was not a question of morals. And it was the the end result of it being able to credibly say, no, you fucking don't. And just by saying that, just by saying that, people would sit back and listen. Okay. That's clearly going away it's now. Not, me, it's not just me, um, about power, Demir, because, um, you know, uh, the Nazis were very powerful in Europe. In fact, for a moment, they seemed like they were the most powerful empire in the world. I, I, no one would say that the the overwhelming power and dominance and he, hege, hegemony of the Nazis led to a suppression of conflict. If they had won, you probably would have had uh, like a, a genocidal peace uh, across the continent that probably would have lasted. I absolutely believe that. Yeah, but I have I have trouble imagining a world that was dominated by the Nazis and Imperial Japan leading to zones of peace and the dramatic expansion of democracy. I didn't say democracy. And, and a rule-based international didn't order. Didn't say anything about rules. Yeah, I said but peace. That's, I right. just said but peace. The thing, but the, the, the rule-based system, Bretton Woods and the set of international institutions that the U.S. presided over post 9-11 is part of this bigger story of a world improving. Not a perfect world, but things improving. Holy Roman and to Empire. say that that's just about power, I just think goes against all the available evidence but, we but have. But Shadi, go, mm. go, go back to the um, split intuitions thing. So is that, I mean, so this is like the line that you've been taking so far is like pretty much the line that you're, I think, Always have taken. wanting to argue in your book. <laughs> the question is, has have the events of the past five months um, caused, like how deep is the sense of like internal contradiction for you around whether democracy and kind of broad American hegemony is like a positive a positive value in the world. Like how, to what degree is this, like this moment actually created and, and, and Shadi, for you? Let yeah, me just I, also, I'm, I'm doubting just, my position. But let me just add one thing, and it's for, for our listeners, uh, just to throw it in there. You, yes, you, they know you, about you, the book I'm working no, on. No, 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 no. The Dragoman post that you tweeted. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the the hardest version, and I wonder how close you are to that. Uh, you know, I don't know if Sam. If you, Do you want to say something it. about how you uh, your impression? Uh, well, I'll 
I can say more about this particular post and describe it, but Demir, yeah. do you want to just dis- say a bit more about what stood out to you I about mean, it? I mean, so regular listeners will remember when we had the Dragoman on. Uh, it was one of our more popular episodes of the last, I don't know, what and we'll def- what, we'll def- what does it take to get to- a definite article in your name? The Dragoman. The just, Dragoman. You just, you just declare it, and, and that's it. <laughs> Yeah, so this was the pseudonymous um, right-wing Muslim person who we had on over the summer, and we'll we'll include a link to that in the show notes. I think the title of that was An Illiberal Muslim Secedes from America. And after we did that episode with him, he actually um, put his money where his mouth was. And he practiced what America. he preached, and he, he, he's now in a sort of self-imposed exile— um, in the Muslim world. Now he lives in a Muslim-majority country. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he moved his family there because he's like, I'm not going to be a part of this any longer. And and um, his essay is an extension, I think, of a lot of the things you were saying, but much more uh, fever-pitched after October 7th. Uh, yeah, with, it's, with it's a, a lot bit, of... It, uh, a little over the top, but I mean, I want to know where your your divergence okay. is because because just to set the scene for people, I mean, he's I don't have it in front of me, but he says basically I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's talking about uh, sort of the narrative that Sam just laid out a little bit, that kind of post-colonial narrative about rapaciousness. He has quotes in there, which you can now uh, dig up, Shadi, but about, you know, uh, like paying taxes to the United States uh, leads to the spilling of blood of countless Muslims across the thing. So it's financing the massacre of Muslims by paying taxes to the United States. Yeah, America is no the longer. spiller of Muslim blood. Yeah. That is actually fundamental to what America is. Let me let me just be clear. This um, this is not a view that I am fond of. However, it is a view that I think is growing, and now it's going to have more traction, and it's going to make it much more difficult for people like me who love America to push back. I'm in a weaker position now, and I have said for a very long time that I do love America. I think I'm actually like a little bit over the top in how I talk about America in that regard compared to white liberals who don't feel comfortable using the word love to describe their, um, you know, relationship to their own country. But the Dragoman in a, in a recent post, and we'll also include a link to this, the, the, the post is titled suggestively, I wanted to love America. So this is actually Dragoman kind of contending with his... Um, his loss of faith in the American idea. And uh, so here's, I'll just quote something from it because I think this puts it really well and it's very stark and somewhat over the top. Yes. He says this, quote unquote, I wanted to love America, but she broke my heart too many times. It is now a threat to itself and to everything it touches. I see no other rational position for any self-respecting Muslim except to work to hasten the, the demise of the, West's, of the West's ability to project power internationally in whatever way it can, uh, if only for the safety of humanity. It's a bit of a mouthful, but basically, yeah. Basically, he is saying that all self-respecting Muslims are now should now work to end American power. So now am- reconcile yourself by answering Sam about the disjoint between your aspirational and your love of America and the rest and the experience of the last five months. So answer that directly with Dragoman in the back of your 
throat. Wait, what? This is for me or Sam? You, you. Because Sam asked you when I butted in with the Dragoman, said, Look, so. Okay, he, yeah. Pull, pull Look, apart the experience versus your. Uh, yeah, so it, look, first of all, it bothers me that Muslims I know are making this argument. This is not what I was hoping for in the post-9-11 world. What I did imagine in a post-9-11 world is that once we got done with the, the folly, the unique folly of Iraq, that we would be able to, and perhaps the Arab Spring would help hasten a better U.S. policy towards the Middle East, and we wouldn't be on the wrong side of history, so to speak, as it related to the Middle East. Um, or at the very least, even if we sucked in the Middle East, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be in a position to do to do something as bad as the Iraq War again, because there weren't going to be wars of that nature where so many Iraqis die either directly or indirectly as a result of U.S. power. Obviously, I didn't anticipate the Gaza war. I don't think most of us anticipated this. Even when it started, I did not anticipate that, what, you know, 24,000 plus. Uh, and even if we, t if we take the kind of, I think, reasonable estimate that one third of them are combatants, that still leaves two thirds that aren't, uh, most of them women and children. So what are two thirds of 24,000? I mean, I don't know, like, um, if, if I could do math, I would say that it was probably 17 or <laughs> I should probably know this. Um, it's something like 17 or 18. Okay, I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want people to okay, call well, me whatever, out. Okay, well, whatever, whatever. I'm not, whatever I'm not the I don't have is. a calculator anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll just do it right now. Two thirds times <laughs> 24. And it's even crazy that we have to do this. We're talking about human lives here. So 16,000. So six, let's say so si let's say around 16,000 civilians have been killed in just over uh, 100 days. Um yeah, so I don't think even even when Israel went into started going into Gaza, I don't think a lot of us were like, "Oh yeah, we're definitely going to reach 24,000 and then 16,000 16,000 of them civilians in the matter of just a few months. Anyway, I mean, I was, if you recall, on our Not podcast. right at the start, Demir, not I right said, at the I start. Said 50, I said 50,000 right at the start. You did, Go but back you, and said listen that, to you said that in a later episode with Khaled, and that was like a month, yeah. uh, over a month in. You did not say that right at the very start. Like, don't try to backfill your own memories here. Yeah. So we're okay, so okay. let's talk Okay, that. but let but, me just, but, okay, but let me just, I'll just finish my thought and then I'll, I'll leave it open for you guys. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.